One of the most powerful ways I've found to deepen my meditation practice has been to go on retreat. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Roger Walsh, says, to advance, I retreat. And I find that quite accurate. In a way, it takes leaving one's normal situation to go deep. And I wanted to share that my teaching partner and I, Emily Horn, are leading a week-long meditation retreat this spring on the theme of mind hacking. And during that retreat, we're going to be exploring five mind training practices that we consider to be essential to hacking the mind, to reprogramming the operating system of consciousness itself. And those include concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, and awareness. This retreat's going to happen in the mountains of North Carolina in Flat Rock, and it's going to involve a lot of silent meditation practice, also some social meditation. It's going to be a very small, intimate group. And we're also going to be exploring how to use technology in a conscious way. Because let's be honest, if you go on a long meditation retreat, many of us check our phones and check the internet, even though we're not supposed to. So we wanted to include that in a conscious way in this retreat. And we're really excited to be exploring these things over the course of a full week in the mountains of North Carolina, starting on March 29th. So we'd love, if you're interested in this, to check it out. It's at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks. Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. I'm going to give a kind of opening address talk on this topic that I've been thinking about for quite a while. It's Buddhism Unbundled. And before I do that, I wanted to say a little bit more about this idea of the convergence, this theme that is going to really run through uh, all of what we do this weekend together. How we came up with this idea of Buddhist Geeks being about exploring the convergence is in 2011, I was um, having a meeting with my colleague and friend, Hokai Sobel, who's here in the front row. I'm going to point him out. <laughs> and... Um, we were having a conversation about what Buddhist Geeks is. It had been about four years since we'd started the project. We'd just done our first conference, and we really wanted to check in and say, you know, what, what is this really about? What are we doing with this project? And we thought we were going to come out with, you know, like a purpose statement or mission. You know, Buddhist Geeks is about this, this, and this. And in the end, we ended up realizing that really it was a question that was driving us. It was, it was a koan, you know, from the Japanese Zen tradition. It was a, it was a question that really was alive for us, but we didn't feel like we quite had the answer to it, and we wanted to live into it more fully. So the question that we came up with was, how can we serve this convergence of Buddhism coming together with global culture, you know, this increasingly global culture that we have? Everyone's sort of increasingly getting connected on the web, and I think there's three billion people expected to get online in the next this decade. So, you know, the whole world is wiring together uh, with this really rapidly evolving 
set of technologies that are changing how we live, how we work, how we are in relationship. They're changing every aspect of our lives, really. How can we serve the convergence of these three elements as they come together? So that was the question that's been driving us this last four years. So it felt appropriate to really make it the central theme of this gathering. And what I'd say is in, in discussing this question, we also acknowledge that the purpose of, of exploring the convergence of serving it isn't necessarily to perpetuate or preserve Buddhism. We actually, in having this conversation, realize Buddhism as we know it may not survive this convergence. Um, that's a possibility. There's another person who influenced me a lot that year that I hung out with named Ken McLeod. And at one point, we were talking about preserving the Dharma. And he asked me in his characteristic way, he said, what, what do you preserve, Vince? What is it that you preserve? Linguistically, like, what is it? And I was like, I don't know, jam? You preserve jam? And he said, yeah, okay, that's kind of right. You preserve things that are dead. You preserve things that are no longer alive, that you want to put in a museum or you want to showcase, you want to save because there's something valuable there. Um, and that really changed things for me. I saw that, that the purpose of what I was doing here wasn't to preserve something. I trust that it will be preserved as needed, but rather to explore where, where are we going, where are we heading from here. And really, to me, it's, it's, again, not taking Buddhism and applying it to the modern world, just. It's having Buddhism shine a light, yes, on the modern world, on our use of technology, on our culture, on our economic systems. Um, there's a lot of wisdom I think, to be had by doing that. But it's also about taking the rest of the world and shining it back on Buddhism and seeing, you know, in what ways is Buddhism diluted? In what ways is our practice not up for the challenge of of meeting this moment? And how can we really respond more fully? So in some ways, the convergence, you know, could be thought of as a kind of coming together, you know, where things are kind of coming together and melding. But it can also be thought of as a kind of collision, as a kind of massive uh, intense collision, kind of like an atom smasher, right? It's, in some sense, the convergence is also a colliding of these different worlds. And part of what we're doing sometimes, I think, is colliding these things and seeing, you know, what comes out of the collision? What comes out when we explore Buddhism and technology? You know, some, some of it's going to be good and some of it's going to be not so great, right? And, and this is really a process, I think, of creative destruction, what we're exploring, and it's, it's also impermanence. You know, it's also things are dying, things are falling away, and new things are arising. Um, that's one of the core tenets of Buddhist practice. So, a lot's being said these days about disruptive innovation. Has anyone heard this term, disruptive innovation? Okay, everything's being disrupted, right? Uh, everything, publishing industry, uh, technology sector, business, everything's being disrupted, education. And one of the primary forces of this uh, creative destruction is what's called unbundling. So this is from the encyclopedic disruptor, Wikipedia. Remember encyclopedias? Okay. (laughs) Unbundling. It's a neologism to describe how the ubiquity of mobile devices, internet connectivity, consumer web technology, social media, and information access in the 21st century, so basically technology, are affecting older institutions, education, broadcasting, newspapers, games, shopping. I'd add Buddhism to this list. By breaking up the packages they once offered 
and providing particular parts of them at a scale and a cost unmatchable by the old order. So I want to give you a few examples of unbundling. You know, these are things you'll recognize pretty, pretty easily. First is cable. Okay? Who here has the cable triple play massive bundle? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. It's fine. <laughs> so this is a common strategy. You know, bundle up these different offerings, TV, internet, phone. Uh, I can't remember how long it's been since I've used a landline, but somehow that's still part of the bundle. And then within the TV, you know, you have how many? Hundreds, thousands of channels that are then bundled within that part of the bundle. So an example of this unbundling is recently, two days ago, uh, HBO announced in 2015 they're going to be offering HBO a la carte. No longer is it part of the cable bundle, right? Okay, so this is unbundling as it's, it's literally happening right now. And I was so glad that HBO announced that two days before my talk because it gave me a perfect uh, example. <laughs> Here's another example, higher education. One way of looking at higher education is, is that it's a bundle of at least three things. One is the curriculum. You know, what is it that you learn in class? What is it that you um, learn from your teachers and learn as part of the formal curriculum that's part of your education? The other is the extracurricular activities. You know, what is it like to, to live on campus or to have conversations with peers, um, to go and hang out at student groups? Uh, the, everything that happens outside of the classroom, that's also part of the higher education experience. And then the third thing is what's sometimes called the signaling process. So, you know, if I go to a good school and I get good grades, that signals somehow that I'm worthy of getting a good job and um, that somehow I'm competent in some way, right? And this is a, one of the functions societally that education uh, takes care of. Unbundling in the educational system is what's happening with what's called the MOOC, the Massive Open Online Courses. 2012 was considered the year of the MOOC. This is things like MIT's OpenCourseWare, edX, Coursera, Udacity, all these platforms that are being developed to take the curriculum part of the higher education experience and unbundle it from the total package and offer it, again, at the cost and a scale which you couldn't match uh, at, at a normal institution. And this is completely changing how we're educating ourselves globally. There are millions and millions of people who are going on to MIT OpenCourseWare and learning how to program or learning mathematics or science that normally would have no access at all to the curriculum. So it's incredible what this is doing and how it's changing education. I mean, the conversation now is about colleges actually surviving the next couple decades, right? So crazy. Okay, here's another bundle that some of you might be familiar with. The three trainings, the threefold trainings of Buddhism, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Ethics being, you know, how do we live? How do we live a good life? What does it mean? What's the most important thing? How do we engage with each other? How do we act in the world? Meditation, all these amazing techniques of exploring consciousness, of developing one's attention, of opening the heart. And then wisdom seeing what Emily talked about, the identity which is fluid, that can move as things change, that we're not fixed anywhere. This is, in some ways, I think, the core operating system of Buddhism. It's the thing at the core of it that makes it, in some sense, what it is. It's also known as the Eightfold Path. 
Here, you remember that you see, seeing the bundles within bundles again? Instead of all the TV channels, you have the different cores of the Eightfold Path. And I think it's important to point out, because I'm using business analogies, and that's kind of strange in a way to talk about Buddhism with business analogies, but unbundling isn't something that's just happening in the business world, right? It's something that's being driven by modernity itself. It's being driven by these technologies enabling us to see the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of human experience and to be able to start to pick out what those are, to discern what they are, and to pull them out and to amplify them and to separate them from their original context and to see what we can do with them once they are separated. So let's go back to the big picture. I want to talk about meditation. I consider this the great disruptor of Buddhism. This is from religious scholar study Eric Braun in his new book, The Birth of Insight. He says, these days many assume that Buddhism and meditation go hand in hand. Sometimes they're even considered to be one and the same. I certainly, when I was exposed to Buddhism, that's what I thought. I thought Buddhism is meditation. But even counting Theravadins, progenitors of the massively popular insight meditation, Vipassana movement, relatively few Buddhists historically have ever understood meditation to be essential. Okay? So this is really interesting. Part of his research was looking at how meditation became so popular, at least within the Theravadan tradition. And he went back to the 1800s and 1900s, and he found this one monk in particular who was really critical named Ledi Sayadaw. And Ledi, who was teaching meditation and, and practicing meditation, which was actually not that common at the time, started to be part of a movement of teaching lay people meditation and also the Abhidharma texts, these esoteric Buddhist psychology texts that normally were just studied by monks. And part of the reason it turns out that he did this wasn't just to kind of spread the Dharma or have people in power to learn this stuff, although that was probably part of it. It was also because the British colonialists were coming into the south of Burma and they were really in some sense threatening the cultural integrity of the Burmese. And so this strategy was really about making sure that the, that wisdom and knowledge was distributed through the population so it couldn't be lost. So in a way, by trying to protect and preserve his tradition, he ended up completely changing it. He ended up unbundling meditation from this tradition, which meditation was just a part of, and it really wasn't even considered that essential. This led to the mass meditation movements of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, of S.N. Goenka and Mahasi Sayadaw and all their meditation centers. You know, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people going through those centers and learning meditation. And in the West now, I mean, I'd say since the 1950s, 60s, we've considered meditation to be an essential part of Buddhist practice. So in many ways, meditation has been unbundled from Buddhism. Let's take this a bit further, okay? I want to go down one level deeper of unbundling. Mindfulness, right? How big is mindfulness now? Like 10 years ago, it was nothing like it is now. I remember when we first started Buddhist Geeks, it was, it was on the radar, but it, was, it just hadn't blown up in this way yet. And now in the last five years, I mean, it's, it's insane, right? I'm going to read two definitions to you of mindfulness, both from Wikipedia, from two different entries. One says mindfulness, the other says mindfulness and then in parentheses, psychology. I want you to consider as I read them, which one do you resonate with the most? Which one do you think is more accurate? So the first, 
Mindfulness, also translated as awareness, is a spiritual or psychological faculty that, according to the teaching of the Buddha, is of great importance to the path of enlightenment. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Correct or right mindfulness is the seventh element of the Noble Eightfold Path. Okay, so mindfulness is like a critical part of this overall package leading to enlightenment, to awakening. The second definition. Again, same entry, mindfulness, just parentheses, psychology. Although originally articulated as part of what is in the West known as Buddhism, there is nothing inherently religious about mindfulness, and it's often taught independently of religious or cultural connotation. Okay, so which one of these is accurate? Which one of these is right? I'd argue that both are right. Um, One is... The first one is really an example of mindfulness as part of the Buddhist bundle. And the second one is an example of mindfulness understood as unbundled from Buddhism, as being taken out of Buddhism. Remember, unbundling is breaking up the packages they once offered, providing particular parts of them at a scale and cost unmatchable by the old order. Has mindfulness done that? Has mindfulness been able to offer this at a a scale that was unmatchable by Buddhism? Yes, I see a lot of heads nodding yes. Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty clear. Um, And it's only really just beginning. That said, (laughs) there is a criticism that comes very quickly on the heels of this observation, right? Sometimes called McMindfulness. The first time I heard that term was actually at the first Buddhist Geeks conference. And I thought, hmm, that actually makes sense to me. And it's true. You know, if you remove mindfulness from its original context, it does change it. It does actually look different. It feels different. It runs different. The experience of it's different. The context matters. It's not just this practice that's independent of any theory. It's actually the theory and the practice come together. They're one package. But in my mind, you know, there's no putting the genie or the Ronald McDonald back in the bottle. You know, there's no putting it back. This, this is already happening. And so it begs the question, where do we go from here? You know, do we defend Buddhism and talk about how much better Buddhism is than mindfulness? Or do we jump off the Buddhist bandwagon onto the mindfulness bandwagon because that is where things are cool and hip? You know, how do we approach this reality of mindfulness becoming pervasive and it becoming unbundled and detached from the Buddhist context of awakening and all of these other factors? So one thing I want to suggest is that this unbundling process of Buddhism is probably not over yet. We might even just be at the beginning of it. So I'm going to just name a few things that I think maybe still could be unbundled from Buddhism. The first is compassion. Okay? So compassion. You know, the Mahayana revolution was so big because they put compassion and wisdom on the same footing. They said these things are equally important. They're like two wings of of a a single bird that needs both to fly. If you look at Stanford Center's uh, Center for Compassion and Altruism Research, they're doing a lot of stuff related to researching the effects of meditation, compassion meditation on the brain and on the body. They've also developed an eight-week course to train compassion in a secular way, just like the MBSR. They're using the exact model that the MBSR used to become popular. It's gaining a lot of steam. So compassion could be next to become unbundled from Buddhism. Concentration. Okay? It's pretty easy to imagine the ability to concentrate and focus being unbundled from Buddhism. In fact, when Buddhism began, it was already in some sense unbundled. 
you know, in some ways, Siddhartha rebundled concentration back into another approach. It was already there. It already existed. So imagine concentration, the ability to focus the mind, to still the mind, to relax the mind, being unbundled from the aims of Buddhist practice and being used for whatever aims one might be interested in. It's not hard to imagine that. The third thing that I think would be really interesting to see unbundled is meditative insight. What we traditionally would think of as meditative experiences of enlightenment or awakening. What if we could develop a technology that supported us in being able to have some of the phenomenological insights into the way that our experience constantly changes? What if that could be something that is unbundled from the original context of Buddhism and awakening and compassion and all these other things? What if it's rebundled with something different? I think contemplative technologies, you know, which is a theme we're going to explore here a lot, could be an accelerant in that process, could be an aid in that process of unbundling. So I think it's something we have to really consider. Now, I've titled this talk Buddhism Unbundled, but I could have just as easily titled it Buddhism Rebundled. So if we just stopped at Buddhism's being unbundled and all these things are coming out of it and goodbye, you know, that's the end of the talk, I think that'd be a little depressing because most of us are here because we feel some sort of resonance and care for the particular operating system of Buddhism. There's something valuable about it that we haven't been able to find elsewhere. There's something really useful and powerful in this schema of the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom going together as part of one thing. And rebundling really is what follows unbundling. If you think of unbundling as a kind of deconstructive process, you know, pulling things out and deconstructing them, rebundling is kind of like the reconstructive process. It's putting things back together, but often in new ways. A quote from Steve Jobs Creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it, they just saw something. So creativity is making connections between things that were previously unconnected. They, they just weren't seen before. And one thing I think that's happening with this unbundling is that all of these different elements are making themselves known, and we're starting to have the opportunity to see connections left and right that weren't seen before. How many of you find that you're at an intersection and you're looking at connections that really haven't been seen before? If you could maybe just raise your hand. How many people are operating in that space? Okay, it's well over half the room. Okay, remember McMindfulness? Quarter pounder of mindfulness with some concentration fries? I think if we step outside of the Buddhist framework, you know, which many of us are kind of inside of it to some degree or another, some of us much less so than others. I think if we step outside of it, we can appreciate what this is about, what this mindfulness movement is about. Susan Kaiser Greenland, who will be giving a keynote tomorrow, she's going to be really talking about the forefront of bringing mindfulness into the educational world. One of our partners, the Center for Mindful Learning, is doing just that. And I think it's hard to argue with the usefulness and the goodness of young kids learning how to still their minds and notice what's arising in their experience. I mean... This just seems like really good common sense, and it's great that it's happening, I think.
you know, we may think the Buddhist model is better, or we may be sad that these kids are also not learning about awakening or something like that. Um, I think that's a natural response. But what I've found is that all models, you know, have their upsides and their downsides. As Heidegger said, they both reveal something really important. They show us something. But as they're revealing it, they also simultaneously conceal something else. They hide something from our view. It's the nature of constructed reality, the nature of a view. This is part of the reason the Buddha, I think, talked about not clinging to views, because all views are incorrect in some ways. They're, they're partial. I think the Buddhist way of framing this might be that wisdom and delusion co-arise. They co-emerge. You can't have wisdom without first having ignorance or delusion. They, they come as a package. They come together. And this is a profound recognition. There's a great Zen line that sort of keeps echoing through my mind. It's part of the Bodhisattva vows. They say, delusions are endless. I vow to put an end to them. Okay, delusions are endless. That's part one. There's no end to them. And somehow I vow still to put an end to them. I think that's a really deep recognition of the way that delusion is hard-coded into our experience. It's not something we can get away from. The moment we think we're getting away from it, guess what? We're already there. We're already deluded again. This is really powerfully humbling. So I think what these Buddhist-inspired forms reveal, like mindfulness, may be of extreme importance to a lot of people. Mindful parenting, mindful eating, teaching, politics, therapy, leadership. I mean, some of these areas, I think, could use a little infusion of mindfulness, right? Maybe. And what about these new forms of Buddhism? I think that's the other part of when we think about rebundling. We can rebundle some of the elements of Buddhism with things that have never been bundled before together, never been connected. We can be creative in that way. But what if we think about Buddhism in this sort of three training model? What if we start to rebundle things in new ways in that context? I mean, in some ways, rebundling Buddhism is nothing new, right? Buddhism has been a constant process of unbundling and rebundling, of dissolving and recreating, of pulling from other traditions and informing the way practice is done. I mean, that's not actually new. But in other ways, with the radical changes of 21st century technology and all of these knowledge streams coming together, we are looking at something extremely new, extremely novel. How I'm looking at these new Buddhist forms and how I've started looking at them is that if they kind of connect with this original framework, this three-training framework, this deep kind of core of what Buddhism is about, then it doesn't really matter what it's called. It doesn't matter if it self-identifies, like this is Buddhist or this is not Buddhist. In some ways, it's sharing of that same deep operating code, that same deep coming together and convergence of different perspectives and trainings. This is really what we're seeing, I think, happening in the modern world. This is what we're exploring on Buddhist Geeks. It's been happening for a long time. We're creatively reconnecting things from new areas, including psychological work, ecological awareness, greater artistic access, powerful scientific knowledge, and new forms of technology. All of these things are being recombined and reconfigured in the, in the context of the three trainings. So what we're doing is we're learning from the past, in some ways, while also going beyond it. 
one of the biggest shifts for me in the last few years as I practice and as I consider these kinds of questions is that I'm not actually trying to just replicate the awakening of the Buddha, the awakening of this person. I'm not just trying to run the same code that he did and experience the same thing. It's not to say that there aren't some experiences which are quite common and universal, even perhaps among people, that are useful and that the Buddha was talking about. Certainly we can learn from that. But I think there's a freedom that comes and actually a taking responsibility for our own process of awakening when we realize that this moment's awakening is unique. These coming together of forms, this coming together of influences, this coming together in our personal lives is a very unique and personal process. And it isn't what the Buddha experienced exactly. Who knows what the hell the Buddha experienced? I don't know. So if Buddhism is changing, I think so is awakening. So is what this is all leading to when we train in it. It's a unique awakening, and it's also a timeless awakening. There's some aspects which are both. There's a paradox here, right? There's that kind of, I don't know what it is, but there's a sort of idiom around, you know, there's nothing new in the world. It's all just kind of rediscovering old things. And I think there's some real truth to that. And yet we rediscover those things in new ways and in new contexts. And this awakening, it's not just felt individually. It's not just alive in our own experience. It's also a social experience. It's also completely interconnected with others. You know, there's, there's a lot being said in the neurosciences about you know, neurons firing and wiring together, right, inside of our brains. Well, I think if we look at ourselves as neurons, as individual neurons, we're always wiring and firing with each other, too. And that's just the reality of the biological sciences. So in some sense, we're all nodes in the network of consciousness. We're all going through this experience of awakening and deluding ourselves together. We're experimenting, trying new things, seeing if we smash things together, if they work or don't work. Um, I don't think it's really a big deal if we mess up. I think because we have each other and we can learn from each other and people can tell us that we're messing up, um, there's certain safeguards in place already. I'm not too concerned about preserving certain forms of Buddhism. I think those things will be preserved and certain people always find it deeply enriching to live certain forms and to, to find the wisdom of them and we'll be able to find those people, I believe. In the same way that there are at least 10 people now that are masters of the Kentucky Flint Rifle of 1790, there will be people that continue certain forms of Buddhism alive for us to go back to and return to and learn from. I don't doubt that at all. So I just want to sort of kick the conference off with these reflections so that as we go together exploring different areas of convergence, you know, we can start to look at how things are coming together, what they're producing, what effects, uh, how it's different than these other things, and, and start to break apart this monolithic idea of there being one awakening or one thing that we're all doing here, and really starting to see that we're exploring a landscape that is not completely understood. It's, it's, it's evolving, it's emerging, it's, it's coming into being right now. And so part of our responsibility, I think, is to um, make our life in support of serving that convergence to the degree that we care and that we're interested. So may our awakening, may our exploration, may the insights that arise from, from this exploration of convergence, uh, may they benefit all beings. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.